Welcome to Gator Bites, the official business podcast of the Maryland Davies College of Business. I'm your host, Miguel Gomez, and before we begin, we'd like to ask you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, X, and LinkedIn at UHDCOB. Today, in our season finale, we have the amazing alumni coming to us today, Alexis Loving. Welcome to the program today. Good to meet you. Wonderful. Uh, well, we're so happy to have you here today. Um, you graduated from our MBA program in 2018, and now we have you here uh, to just sort of chat about your program time and to sort of get to know you. So, um, welcome. Um, Thank you. To begin, I'd love to ask you, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what is your connection to the UHD MBA program? Sure. Um, so, a little bit about myself. I did not grow up in Houston. Mm. I always feel like that's important, um, especially because this school is so many folks that live right here, and it's a commuter college. Yeah. But I grew up uh, in Pennsylvania, and I went Ooh. to school in Boston um, and moved down here to kind of get started in my work. And I fell into homeless services by accident. Mm. It was through an internship in my undergrad program. Um, and I fell in love with this work and just how challenging it was. And... Uh, you know, moved down to Houston to pursue it. So I've worked at, at Search for over 13 years now, mm. and I started as a case manager on the ground, doing work with our clients, and kind of progressed through the agency in lots of different ways. Um, so my work is a huge part of me, but also I have a family, I have three young kids, oh. I'm very active in our school district and in like our neighborhood and area. Um, yeah, and I got to UHD. I did my MBA here, like you said, um, back in, well, I finished in 2018. Um, it went by pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, and I, I did a concentration in leadership. Mm. And I think that's really apt considering where you're at now. You, mm -hmm. you started off as a case manager, but now you're serving as the president and CEO of Search Homeless Services, uh, one of the biggest homeless service uh, providers and nonprofits in the greater Houston area. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Please tell us about your organization and what is it that you do in the community to address homelessness? Sure. So Search has been around for over 30 years, mm -hmm. and it started kind of humble beginnings. It was a, a soup kitchen, essentially. They were doing meals and showers and laundry. Um, all the things are meeting basic needs of, of people living on the street. Mm -hmm. But as the population evolved, Houston evolved, we realized that there was a much greater need to do something uh, to actually solve the problem right. and not just to you know help people sustain life on the street. And so search our our primary function is around case management services, mm -hmm. which is really working with people around their behavior and their motivations for change, um, to change their life, to change the way that they do things so that the cycle doesn't keep repeating itself of homelessness. Right. So at Search, we work on the streets with people who are experiencing literal homelessness, people who are living in tents or in underpasses. Uh, we have outreach teams that go out into the community, develop rapport and, and trust with folks to get them to come in and, and seek services in a different way. Um, another big arm of our work is around housing. Hmm. So we work with folks who are formerly homeless once they get housed in permanent housing. And that could be through rapid rehousing, permanent supportive housing. But we work with about a thousand people or households at any point in time to provide those case management services. And really the focus is around stabilized housing, increasing and improving their income so they can take care of themselves right. and live, and then improved health outcomes. Um, life on the streets really deteriorates your health at a much faster rate, and most right. people don't take care of themselves. 
Wow, that sounds like you have a lot of services that y'all provide in the community, and essentially just starting out from a soup kitchen to uh, being able to provide the case management at every step to provide a more well-being recovery sounds like a really big impact. You know, it takes a village to be able to solve an issue like this. And, you know, I'd love to just sort of ask you something that's a little bit hard-hitting. You know, more often than not, whenever we meet um, or encounter homeless people on the street, sometimes we may have these preconceived notions, mm -hmm. these stigmas. But what are some things that you wish to dispel about the homeless? And what are some ways that we can reframe the way that we think about homelessness, especially here in the city of Houston? Sure, it's a great question. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of misconceptions mm -hmm. about why people are homeless and why we can't solve the problem so easily, right? But it's a really complicated issue. I tell people all the time that homelessness is the combined failure of every other system in our country. The failure of you know, the justice systems, the foster care systems, the healthcare systems, the penal systems, everything. It kind of creates this dumping ground in homeless services. Mm -hmm. um, and people aren't homeless because of one single thing. It's usually a combination mm. of different issues that can't just be fixed you know in one simple step but the most important thing when you're trying to solve homelessness is around housing mm. uh, it is about providing some place for people to live and that comes first and foremost uh, you can't ask somebody to change their life or to quit using a substance or to take mental health uh, you know drugs or to find a job if they don't have a simple place to sleep at night a safe right. place it's kind of like you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Um, so in, in Houston and in every other city in the U.S., one of the biggest challenges we're facing is around housing affordability. It's, you know, growing more and more expensive to live, which means more and more people are falling closer and closer to that deep poverty line. Right. And there are people in my community and in yours and probably students in the school that are very close to experiencing homelessness every day. But one of the single factors that makes people fall in is the cost of housing. Um, and it's one of the biggest, the biggest pieces. Um, another thing I think that gets really commonly misconceived is that everybody on the street is you know, a substance user. And there definitely are folks that use substances and it definitely can lead to, to a higher instance of homelessness. Um, a lot of people self-medicate when they're on the streets to take care of themselves, they're in a horrible, horrible state, right. and it's the way of kind of taking care of themselves. But really, the substance abuse issue that we're seeing on the street isn't really any greater than what we see off the street. Um, it, it's, it's not the reason that people are singularly homeless. It definitely becomes harder, though, to get them out of that homelessness when they're using. That gives a lot of context, and one thing that you mentioned stood out to me, um, the idea of Maslow's hierarchy. Mm -hmm. You have to sort of establish those base needs before you're able to go higher up the pyramid to be able to eventually reach high self-actualization and to be product mm -hmm. productive and to be a self-functioning member of society. But, you know, um, we're coming up on an election year. Mm -hmm. um, we're about to elect a brand new mayor here in the city of Houston. Mm -hmm. um, what are some things that policymakers can do to help support uh, this shared mission of addressing homelessness? It's a good question. Uh, you know, our city council and um, also Harris County both fund a lot of the homeless services and they have a big sway in helping 
us do our work. So local politics matter a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things, though, that's most important really is around this housing affordability issue. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people will say that they're for housing affordability, but then when you start talking about what that really means and what it means for their community or their neighborhood, people start getting very uncomfortable about the idea of public housing or mm -hmm. affordable housing going into their neighborhoods. So really, I think taking the time to understand what that means and making sure that Houston is building at a rate that we can keep up um, is important. There's a lot of uh, cities across the country that, <clears throat> you know, the housing affordability is just way out of reach, like LA or New York City, right? right. There are also places where you have some of the biggest homeless populations. If they continue at the rates they're going, it's going to be even more disastrous. So it's really important that Houston's doing such a great job on this issue, but we need to look ahead um, and make sure that we don't fall behind in time. That's really eye-opening, and I think that that gives a lot of context in terms of how can decision makers be able to make um, the right choices to be able to help mm -hmm. those uh, in terms of uh, addressing uh, housing affordability and affordability. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to ask you, you know, this is a really interesting question just because, you know, you're someone who works in this field. Um, a lot of people, like you mentioned, have uh, their reservations about being able to open up affordable housing in their neighborhoods, mm -hmm. uh, sort of like a, not in my backyard or NIMBY. Mm -hmm. um, what are some ways that you can challenge those, uh, those preconceived notions and show that this is actually a benefit to the community uh, sure. to build in their neighborhoods? <clears throat> I think it's really important to look at what the data says, you know, look at really who we're talking about when we talk about affordable housing, mm -hmm. um, you know, go visit affordable housing and see it. I think people have these notions of, you know, projects and, you know, really decrepit neighborhoods and people who are so different than them. But when yeah. you go and you actually visit public housing, it's not like that. Right. Um, and so just making that, you know, that space and that effort to see it firsthand and experience it, I think is very, uh, you know, eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah. I, when, when people think of public housing, I think they think of like the 70s brutalism, yes. like it's very concrete, <laughs> it's very like, you know, lo love, um, I forget that one uh, famous neighborhood in St. Louis, Missouri, but mm -hmm. they think of that idea, but it's evolved so much since then. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, now that you're in this role, it seems like you have a command of the data. You understand what's going on in the community. Mm -hmm. You're exhibiting some real leadership. Mm -hmm. um, how do, you, do the skills that you learn in your MBA play into what you do today? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I was thinking about this. I mean, it's easy to say um, my MBA work, you know, helped me work with different people. And as much as I hate, you know, all the group work and everything, <laughs> it's that is life, um, especially in a leadership position. I think. The different concentrations and working with people that just think so differently, right? Um, you know, finance majors and accounting majors and marketing majors, it really did help me get a different sense of what my team looks like today. Mm. Uh, when I was leading within the organization and programs, everybody had a very similar background to me and had a very similar interest and kind of way of thinking. Now at this executive level, I'm leading all these different departments and we're all you know, they're wired very differently. So having some just basic even understanding and language um, has been really helpful. But I think another piece is that, so I, I juggled my MBA while I was in, I was working full time right. and I had uh, a young child and then I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. And one of the most important things I think was just like learning to juggle all of that. You know, I still had projects, I had things going on. Um, I was in I was in my program during Harvey. Um, and so the, you know, like figuring out how all of those things come together, how I still am able to succeed in each of those areas, 
Uh, it's like, you know, if I can make it through all of that, I can make it through anything. So. Wow. You, you truly are the definition of Houston strong. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And especially during the aftermath of Harvey uh, the, and while being uh, pregnant and having uh, to um, have the prospect of juggle all those things together. It's, it's, it's really humbling. Uh, this is a little bit off topic, mm -hmm. but, you know, you mentioned that you were pregnant during your MBA. Um, one of the things that has always resonated with me, uh, but I can't really identify as well, is the experience of a mother going to a school, especially mm -hmm. in higher ed. That's what my mom did whenever she was carrying mm -hmm. my sister. And it was something that was really challenging for her at the time in, in the 80s. But now we're about 20 years ahead. What are some ways that we can create more accommodating spaces for expectant mothers who are also pursuing higher education degrees? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think, so I was fortunate with the experience here of being able to attend like in the evenings and that kind of thing, like that helped balance. Um, I wasn't trying to figure in, you know, medical appointments and doctor's appointments, which are so abundant when you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I think some of it is just around like the understanding too of the unexpected, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so I was battling this uncertainty of like when I would, you know, give birth to her and whether I'd make it to graduation or not. Yeah. Um, so I think just having professors that understand that and are accommodating. Um, I was fortunate, a lot of the, the folks that I worked with, um, both my peers and the professors, like I was very visibly pregnant, but also many of them had had kids themselves too. And I think just as more and more as we normalize it, you know, it just becomes more um, everybody becomes more accepting yeah. and more understanding. And it's something that's important to me in my work, too, um, to make sure that you know people can balance life and family and all of those things at one time. Yeah. I think that's so, that's so humbling because I think it, it shows the amount of grace that people show towards you and something that you carried into the work that you do now. I'd like to ask you, whenever I'm driving, for example, down the highway mm -hmm. or I'm driving through the city, uh, you know, I, I'm at the stoplight and I see a homeless person. Mm -hmm. What are some ways that I can show some grace and at least acknowledge them as a human being? And, you know, um, the idea of giving money to the homeless is also sometimes controversial. Sure. How can I help the homeless whenever I'm just at the stoplight, you know? Sure. I love that question. I love the way that you that you phrased it, too. Of like, how can I show some humility and grace? You know, I always tell people first, like, make eye contact and wave. That seems so simple and stupid, but people, the, the instinct is to like look down or like fiddle with your phone, but just like wave and just say no. You know, if somebody's asking for money, um, just say no, sorry, you know? And I mean, people are people, they're right. human. Um, another thing you can do though, is you can always keep like bottles of water, granola bars, that kind of thing in your, in your car and hand them out if you really feel compelled to do something in the moment. Um, but one of the most important things I think is you know, when you have that that feeling of empathy, that feeling of compassion and concern, mm -hmm. it's like channel that and do something with right. it, right? So you don't have to act in that moment. You don't have to change that person's life right there in front of you, but go back and do something. Mm -hmm. You know, go give five bucks when you get home to an organization. Um, you can do it from your phone, probably in the car <laughs> even. You know, go volunteer somewhere or do some, some research and some learning around what's working. Um, because the community, we need more and more people that want to be a part of the solution and right. not just the band-aid. I think that that's a perfect way to be able to say to our Gator community, what are some ways that they can get involved? Um, you mentioned volunteering and giving, sure. but um, I've never volunteered and I want to volunteer, for example. What are some ways that you would say is a good place for Gators in our community to get started? Sure. So if this issue really appeals to you, 
I'd say reach out to an organization that aligns. Um, I mean, you can definitely reach out to search. We love volunteers. But, you know, there's different uh, kind of pieces of homelessness. There's folks who do, you know, soup kitchen work or, you know, meals and serving. There's different housing sites and centers. Um, or there's, you know, agencies like us who do outreach. So it's kind of think about, like, what specifically you're interested in right. doing. Um, one great place to volunteer and just to get a taste of what this work is like is at the Beacon. Mm. So the Beacon does meals, showers, laundry. They're so essential to basic need services, and they rely on dozens of volunteers every day. Wow. So it's a great place to just kind of start and to test your comfort, mm. I'd say, with the population and the work. It's definitely not for everybody. Um, but it's a great place to try it out and see and then to learn a bit more about maybe how you'd like to be involved in a deeper way. That, that mm-hmm. gives me a good insight, and even more so uh, if volunteering is not for you. Houston is a very philanthropic yes. city, so um, if you feel very charitable this season, uh, there are a lot of organizations that do need help in our community. Um, I'd like to get to our last question sure. just because I'm really excited, and I've been wanting to <laughs> ask you this this whole time. Congratulations. Oh. You've recently been named to the Houston Business Journal's 40 Under 40. <laughs> I know it sounds a little bit ex- excessive, but what does this milestone mean to you? And how do you hope that it'll, it, what advice do you have to Gators making an impact in the community? Yeah, uh, it's it's an amazing honor. Um, I don't think I really understood quite what that was or what it meant. And I remember uh, the night of the event, the celebration, they were calling out all the different names and you know, talking about what all these people have done and who they are in their communities. I mean, I had like the worst case of imposter syndrome in the <laughs> world, right? Of thinking that I, I'm even on the same page as some of these folks, um, you know, on a paper. But it's it's incredible to, to get this opportunity to meet so many other outstanding uh, folks in Houston who are making a difference in such different avenues. So that just alone has been amazing. Um, you know, my dad, so my dad was an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and I watched him, you know, in business, I watched him work really hard and I always knew that I wanted to lead in some capacity, some kind of organization. Um, so I think it, you know, it's really, it's a good feeling to know that you do good work and that you work as hard as you can, but it is um, really amazing when someone else recognizes that. And oh. so that's what it has felt like, you know, being recognized by the Houston Business Journal. That's amazing. And mm-hmm. uh, what advice would you have for any Gators who want to make an impact in their community? Sure. I mean, there's so many different ways you can make an impact. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's like slow down and, and think about what speaks to you, you know, what you care about the most and take the time to really learn and understand the issue. Um, there's a lot of organizations and people out there doing incredible work. And that was something you know, I had to learn, like, I knew that I, I wanted to do nonprofit work in a cause. And I think one of the first things is people say, I'm going to found a nonprofit. I'm going to start this work. But it's so much more impactful and meaningful to join something that's already in action and to just add the skills and the unique talents that you bring to that. Um, so I say, you know, it's like, look at what you do, what you do well, what you care about, mm. and then try and find the right match. Wow, a sort of uh, servant type leadership. Mm-hmm. That's amazing to find something that, that draws you and to drives you to yeah. do good in the community. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming to the program, Alexis. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on your award, and thank you so much for being an alumni of our institution and making a big impact in our community. Thank um, you. I couldn't have thought of a better guest to wrap up season mm-hmm. one. Um, well, this has been Gator Bites, uh, the official business podcast of the Maryland Davies College of Business. I've been your host, Miguel Gomez. Our producers have been Victor. 
Victor Henson, Ricardo Saint, and our set designer is Evangelina Vasquez. Uh, we want to remind you to take a bite out of business, and we'll see you in Season 2, Gators. <laughs>